Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a podcast from Minute Media. So McCarthy is fanned and the Diamondbacks are down to their final out. And now Seth Beer will come up to pinch hit. He struck him out. Now the ball game is over. Diaz works around a leadoff walk in the ninth. The Mets have their third shutout in their first 10 games. A combined five hitter. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, April the 17th, 2022. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media and get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com, and I want to welcome in the good folks from the Fan-Sided Podcasting Network, and of course, our friends over at RisingApple.com. Happy Easter, happy Passover, happy Ramadan, the uh, trinity of holidays, I guess, all come together here on this Sunday. Opening weekend at City Field, our first home series of 2022. You couldn't have asked for better weather. Well, maybe today you could have asked for a little better weather. It was... I mean, didn't it feel a little bit like uh, you know early November, late October at the Met, at MetLife and the Giants and Jets are playing? But anyway, it's spring. It's somewhat baseball weather, and what a weekend! And the theme of this show, even though coming in, you heard 
the clincher, the final out, Edwin Diaz nailing down the final out of a three-game opening weekend series. The theme is Tom Seaver. And I have a really fun guest, and we're going to be spending the majority of the program. And I know it's hard. You're going to be saying, well, really, what more can I learn about Tom Seaver? 300-game winner, Hall of Famer, the 77 trade deadline. Now the statue has been unveiled. Finally, after all these years, the complaints about no Mets history, uh, Jackie Robinson Rotunda, nothing wrong with that, but that's not a Mets player. Now they finally get the statue. Well, what more can we talk about, Mike? Well, I actually have a guest that I think you'll find interesting because I was thinking about this weekend for a long while, and back in the middle of the pandemic, a book came out called Tom Seaver and Me. And I'm not sure if you guys have read it. If you haven't, you certainly should check it out. Simon & Schuster is the publisher. But Pat Jordan, long-term author, long-term journalist, met Tom Seaver all the way in the early 1970s. Actually, and I was able to uh, scrounge it up, had an article written in Sports Illustrated that you could actually get out of the vault. And I'm going to bring that up for all of you. I should have had it up. I should have had it up before the show, but, you know, here I am doing a million things. Tom Terrific and His Mystic Talent, July 24th, 1972, really just, I think it was the first introduction to, he, you know, sitting down with Tom. He had known Tom, and he became friendly with Tom, but really was showing the human side of uh, Tom Seaver. Back all the way back in 1972. This is after the 69 World Series. This is after his Cy Young Award. This is after striking out all those Padres. This is after the near perfect game with Jimmy Qualls in 1969, in July 1969. And Pat Jordan, who you could check out, has both also fiction books over there as well. Uh, PatJordanStories.com. You can write, you know, there's the best of sports writing, stuff that you may not have seen if you are familiar with Pat. But Pat was a minor league baseball player himself, a guy that the Milwaukee Braves uh, bonus baby was drafted, had no command and control. You think Miguel Castro drives me nuts? You think Edwin Diaz drives me nuts? You think Sean Reed Foley drives me nuts? Well, Pat Jordan, I think, walked like six or seven, eight or nine per nine innings in his career. You can check him out over at Baseball Reference. When his career was over, he went into sports writing, struck up this 40-plus year friendship with Seaver. And I think, and I had a chance to talk to him Friday morning, early, just hours before the statue ceremony. And I wanted to get his reaction to the Seaver statue. Give us a little bit or try to get a little bit out of him about maybe something about Tom Seaver, the man that we didn't know. I mean, everybody who has come in contact with Seaver has... Something to say, you know, whether it be a good experience, bad experience from an autograph situation. I know the writers. I've talked to Bob Clappish. I I know guys who have covered him. Marty Noble came on the program many, many years. The late Marty Noble, I know we talked to him. I mean, Seaver was a complicated guy. Not always easy to cover, challenged you. I mean, many of you in the audience who are in my generation probably remember Seaver more as a broadcaster when he was on the old sports channel. Up until about 2005 when he was on there with Ted Robinson and Fran Healy. I mean, Tom was sometimes a bit arrogant and and difficult to take as a broadcaster. But uh, Hall of Fame pitcher personifies the birth of the Mets and the rise of the Mets. And and he is the Mets. You know, you have, and, and again, I keep saying that Mike Piazza doing a great job as the ambassador of the alumni group. And Mike is the Mets for a generation of Mets fans. But Tom is 
the Mets. I mean, that's the Mets Babe Ruth. That's where it all starts, and that's where it all emanates from. And, and any Mount Rushmore of Mets starts with Tom Seaver. He's never going to be kicked off of that, no matter what comes 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years down the line. So, Pat Jordan, you'll have a chance to hear that in just a couple of minutes. You know, as far as the Mets, you know, we're as we talked about, and we talked a lot about the bullpen on the short that came out on Thursday, I'm not going to get too deep into the ball club after this week and basically chalk. They beat a bad Diamondbacks club two out of three. They'll see them again next week. I mean, within a week, they'll be done with the Diamondbacks. They have their first test series against the Giants. You heard three shutouts in 10 games. The starting pitching has been fabulous. They're leading the league, despite all the grumblings about how not everybody's hitting. They're leading the league. They're tied with the Dodgers for the most runs scored. In 10 games, they've scored 51 runs. That's 5.1 runs per game. Right around what the calculator, the this is, I'm telling you, I'm going to make this a thing. We sat there at the beginning of the year. We, we threw the numbers in. We threw all these different iterations. The base, the calculator. I'm going to call it the calculator. The baseball musings calculator. It says the Mets should score 5.2, 5.3 runs per game. They're at 5.1 now. They're right there. So we'll see if the calculator is right. And uh, for a change, some of the projections come true. Uh, really, to me, what I took away from this week, and I'm going to throw everything that was on the field, whether it be Pete Alonso's performance, the starting pitching, the bullpen, the good, the bad, the ugly, Buck, really with the J.D. Davis play on the Ali Perez on the mound over there. I mean, Ali Perez is still pitching. I, I feel like Scott Rowland's ball was just hit yesterday. What the hell's going on here? Uh, the, the heads-up play by J.D. Davis to negate the appeal play at third. That's the Buck Showalter effect. I mean, a heads-up Mets team, something that for many, many years you never would expect to, to see. The Mets are usually on the other end of something like that. All that good stuff we'll put aside. You know, one-fifth of the way through this getting-to-know phase, right? That's what we call it here at the Talking Mets podcast. I want to really focus on when I saw that sea of fans at City Field on Friday. I, I was just amazed when I saw the panoramic of the crowd from above, how many fans came out on a Friday. Good Friday, first day of Passover. So there's some religious aspects to it. A work day. I mean, I know now with remote work and, you know, three-day work weeks. I know work is not work. Everything's different. Everything's negotiable. Work's not work. Baseball's not baseball. Extra innings is not extra innings. Everything's negotiable, right? But still, you think there's some semblance of normalcy in the world right now. But it's a Friday during the day, 1130 in the morning. This huge sea of crowd. I think it was Gary, it was Gary Cohen or Howie Rose said it looked like Woodstock. I mean, it looked like a concert in the park or somewhere. A tremendous turnout. I thought Steve Cohen did a nice job. I thought Nancy Seaver did a nice job. I thought Mike Piazza did a nice job. I mean, to unveil this statue, and I know Tom is important to, to the Mets, but you know how many times the Mets have had days and they just didn't turn out right? Yeah, 88 when they had Tom Seaver Day and all that stuff and 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 what have you. That was that was one thing. That was a great crowd on a Sunday. But I remember when he was elected to the Hall of Fame, I think in 1992 it, like it got rained out and there it always seems like even you know the night I went to the 86 celebration what was it 2006 it was 20 years it rained that night so there's always that concern that there would be an issue. Uh, you know, obviously there was Mike Piazza day and that went really well, but he always I know I felt like sometimes these Mets days something doesn't happen, whether it be weather-wise, the game doesn't mean anything, there's something going on with the team in the backdrop, something always is going on. Today, 
uh, well, not today, but Friday, April 15th, a day no more for taxes than anything, right? It was perfect. And then you, you couple that with Jackie Robinson, and obviously we know Jackie Robinson and, and, and what he did for the sport and the importance of his integration. And by the way, he's a pretty darn good ball player. I mean, I think the biggest thing, non-sequitur here about Jackie Robinson that gets overlooked is, look at those numbers on baseball reference. That's an elite, 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 elite run creator. Forget about the color barrier for a minute. The guy could have played on my team any day of the week. He could have been purple. I mean, let's, let's just put it that way. So he earned every bit of what he got, and, and we know what he went through. You have that with the number 42 uniforms. Butch Husky in the house. I mean, Steve Cohen could not be doing a 180 about Mets history than what he's done. Now, hopefully they don't overdo it. I know they're doing the Santana no-hitter later this year, and they got a lot of fun stuff planned. So, you know, the Mets have a uh, don't have a short history. They're, they're, they're becoming a mature team, but you don't want to throw all the history in one shot, and then you're repeating it every year, or now you're like, all right, we did everything in 20. We made up for, for 50-plus years in 2022. That's it. But anyway, I digress here. I... What I saw with that crowd is how this fan base, and I've talked about it. Yes, it's a yoke around their neck, whoever comes here. Yes, there's all this paranoia and bad energy and failure that, that is chasing them. And whoever, and if it's Buck or somebody else, whoever breaks through and wins and gets that yoke broken, that 86 yoke that's around their neck off and has the next generation of a Mets championship, they will be canonized. And if you don't think, if I'm Steve Cohen, I'm standing around, I'm like, hmm, look at this. And I see all those empty junkyards out there that this part of Queens, and I know COVID, politics, you know, I'm in a domain. I get all the stuff. I'm not getting into any of that. I'm just talking conceptually here. If you don't think that that area and this fan base is begging for a breakthrough, for there to be like a Mets village with hotels and shops and apartments and all good stuff. In all due respect, I don't want to see them just plop up a housing project over there. Like, I think they should have a village. Like, you know, when you go to Pittsburgh or Wrigleyville or something really cool that could be all Mets and it could be inclusive to bring people together. And, you know, it really could bring the Mets to the next level. I mean, think about the Yankees and all the Yankees have gotten from the media. And as much as... They have all that history that follows them from stadium to stadium. And they got stands over there. And I've been on River Avenue and whatnot. And there seems to be a certain amount of charm over there. But they don't even have a village. They don't even have a, you know, they have the bat. You really look at that and you're like, this team and this brand is ready to explode. They have one of the, they have the richest owner in the game worth $15 billion who wants to make this kind of his legacy, who can use this as a medallion and and become an even bigger part of society, more so than just dollars and cents. Could you imagine what he can be in this franchise history if he could take this team and get it to the next level, not just from winning a championship, but from the experience at City Field? And you just saw the scratching of the surface with what that Seaver ceremony was all about. And we'll have some clips going into the break before we get Pat Jordan up. So that's what I was thinking about. I'm looking at this, I'm like... Right in front of me, as I'm looking at that ceremony, as I see from above, they had the the, the 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 shot. There's the yoke in front of you, the the pressure and the expectation and the demands. But there's also the excitement, the energy. Yeah, there was no energy in the park today, but it's it's Sunday, Easter, and Passover. You couldn't expect that. But think about Friday, 
in the blowout win. And then when Marte hit that home run on Saturday, I know Saturday was a bummer, but the crowd, I mean, this this should be one of the more ultimate home field advantages in the sport. Right up there at Yankee Stadium. Yeah, they don't have the chains and the ghost and Babe Ruth and all the other stuff that comes with. Well, that was really the old Yankee Stadium, not the new Yankee Stadium. But you get where I'm going. They can make their own thing here. And it really gives me a lot of hope and excitement. Now, the le- we know as Mets fans and me covering this team, the best laid plans, I could be listening to this in five months. You're like, Mike, you, where the hell were you? What the hell were you thinking there on Easter Sunday? But I really believe we're, we're beginning to see something really iconic and special. And we're, we're living in Mets history. We are literally living in Mets history when this franchise is changing. Maybe the area around that stadium is changing, but everything we've been wanting, the history part, a club that spends money, a fun club, a club that's building a foundation and a culture of winning with a competent manager, something that they haven't had maybe in ever, at least since the 80s. Maybe you could put Bobby Valentine in there for sure, but in in forever, it seems, is all there. And to me, that's what I took away from Tom Seaver Day, the hope that we are living in a new era of Mets history, an era that we're all going to remember and we're all a part of. And when we're older, 40 years from now, we're looking into the history books and you have a grandson or a nephew or whoever in your life, you know, is young at that time, says, you know, talk to me about what the Mets were. Because I can't imagine a time when the media made fun of the Mets and the Mets had no hope and the Mets didn't spend money and they they played in this, uh, in this you know, this Nice little stadium called Chase Stadium. But what do you mean? There was junkyards outside? There was nothing around this Metsville? I don't know. And maybe it's a pipe dream because of New York City politics and all the other things that go into building around anything here in New York City. But I got to think there's tons of opportunity as we move away from the pandemic and, and hopefully a different New York City that that would be part of the plans. It should have been years ago, and and, and I guess... Obviously, the other things were more important. Part of that was building the stadium. So anyway, let's take a quick break. When I return, we'll listen to a couple of highlights from Friday's Seaver Statue Ceremony. Pat Jordan, author, also wrote a book, Tom Seaver and Me. Get a chance to hear a little bit about Pat Jordan's friendship with Tom Seaver. And maybe he'll give you something that you didn't know about Seaver and peel the curtain back a little bit. I know you've heard it all. But I think you might learn something from Pat Jordan. We'll be back with that and more right after this. Tom led us to our first championship. He transformed the Mets, transfixed New York, and won the hearts of Mets fans. Tom Seaver was a great pitcher, an even greater man. He was poised and intelligent, and he represented our team as a, as a proud Marine with dignity excellence, and honor. It's been said that humility is royalty without the crown. That's why Tom Seaver is our royalty. A humble warrior, Tom brought many things to all of us. But I think the biggest thing he brought to us was faith. Faith in this team, faith in this organization, and faith in all of you, the fans. And that's why we love him, and that's why we'll always cherish him. And this statue is a beautiful tribute and a memory that we will always hold special in our hearts. So God bless. I need to express my gratitude to the Met organization 
for having this very special tribute for Tom. Tom. Of course, I can't mention the fans enough. Uh, thank you all for showing up here today. It's so good to see you again and all the med hats. And uh, yeah, you're always so enthusiastic and supportive uh, to the Seaver family. And I really appreciate that. Well, yeah, we love you. Pat Jordan, you guys may have read the book. It came out a couple of years ago, Tom Seaver and me. Pat was a former minor league pitcher himself, and he had a chance to interview Tom Seaver and then uh, many years later wrote a book about his interactions. And he's joining us just a few hours away from a long overdue honor from his former team at City Field, where Tom Seaver's statue will be unveiled on opening day today as the Mets play the Arizona Diamondbacks. And Pat, welcome to the program and um, uh, I'm guessing when you interviewed Tom Seaver all those years ago, you wouldn't think it would take, uh, oh, what, 50 plus years for the Mets to finally honor one of the, you know, there's really no argument. No, there, greatest player. And here we no, are. I didn't on, think uh, it would take so long. <laughs> and here we are on this uh, this great spring day in New York. So how you doing? And, and welcome to the program. I'm fine. I'm glad to be here. Uh, anything for Tom? Uh, listen, I know Tom when he was a kid. He was uh, 27. I was 30. And uh, the very first thing we did was play basketball against each other and beat each other up. And uh, he liked that. And uh, anyway, we, uh, we got along really well over 40, 45 years. And we were very similar guys. Uh, uh, he He was more of a... He was a smart guy who always uh, thought he was just a blue-collar guy. He didn't think he was as smart as he should have. And I was a blue-collar guy who was doing a white-collar job, you know. Uh, so we got along great. As far as the Mets go, I know Nancy was really pissed off that they hadn't had a statue for him, especially it took so long that he's, he's dead. He should, have been, he should have been there at the moment, you know. Uh, other than that, I didn't even know the statue was going to be put up today. Wow. Wow. And you, uh, I, you know, I've seen some, uh, photos. I mean, they haven't really unveiled everything, but it looks beautiful. I mean, if you think about other statues, you know, Philadelphia, they have Mike Schmidt and whatnot. I think everybody kind of uses the same, uh, um, uh, format, but it's there as you walk into that rotunda, the rotunda that, Look, Jackie Robinson is an iconic sports figure. There's no yeah. argument. But I guess when you're talking about the Mets, Jackie Robinson is more of a baseball icon, and there's nothing wrong with it. But the controversy yeah. was, why not the Mets? And I think with now the new ownership, and, and I'll tell you what, Pat, uh, I'll give Mike Piazza, who has been on the show and I've talked to many times, credit yeah. as, a for, as a Hall of Famer, former Met, a guy who's a more modern-day player. He's taken seriously kind of being that 
uh, spokesperson for the alumni group for the Mets, and he'll be there today. And and I think you're seeing a new era in uh, you know Mets baseball where they're embracing their history. I know it's a difficult history, and you were there. You interviewed Tom back in the early '70s when, like you said, he was in his 20s, and just three years after the Miracle Mets. So you saw them when the Mets were babies. They really had no history, and you were there as oh, it was yeah. unfolding. Oh, yeah, I saw them when they were, you know, losing and all that. Uh, Tom, Tom loved the Mets, and he wanted uh, – he was really brokenhearted when they sent him to Cincinnati, and especially the thing with uh, Dick Young and uh, Donald Grant. It really broke his heart. But then again, he told me, he said, I wouldn't have won 300 games if I stayed with the Mets. Because That's right interesting. after he left the Mets – they lost. Uh, they, they couldn't win a game, and he was sort of good to Cincinnati hitting team. And Cincinnati might not have been as good as they should have been as a team, but they were a great hitting team, which made them a perfect team for Tom. You know, yeah. I mean, he was the top pitcher pitcher on the, on the team. I mean, what the, what the hell? The first half a year with him, he went fourteen and one. The yeah. year when the Mets let him go. I, I mean, I. So anyway, he said, he told me he would never have won 300 games if he had stayed with the Mets. That's interesting. So. And, and the, the, it's complicated. And you mentioned the, the complicated history. And, and it's amazing how the best player in the franchise, 300-game winner, you'll probably never see a 300-game winner, not because of anything about talent, but the way the game is now in a Mets uniform. Yeah. Not only was he traded, the controversial trade, uh, years later, and I think that was more of a benign situation, they leave him unprotected. Uh, Frank Cashin, and, right. and he wasn't there. Uh, he wasn't there for the glory of the '80s. Now, some argue, and I've we've talked about this. You looked was was it better for Tom because well, better for the Mets because you had Gooden and Darling, and and those young pitchers may not have gotten a chance as quickly with Tom there. But then there's always that what if, and I'm wondering, did Tom have that what if? What if he was with that '85 '86 team? Would would things have been different? Would they have won another one? Would it have made a Gooden a better pitcher? We don't know, but. That's the ultimate sometimes what if is the second round where it was more of a. Well, I, think it was, I think it was better for Tom not to be with that team for him personally, because he wouldn't have had to be called back to the Mets long after his glory days were open over when he was no longer the, the pitcher he was with, when he was with the Mets and have to be on a team as maybe the fourth starter behind Doc Gooden. And, you know, I think that would have been hard for him to take. I mean, he was a very proud man. And uh, for the Mets to call him back, say, when Gooden and they had all those young pitchers uh, and he would be relegated to the fourth or fifth starter, I think that would have broken his heart, too. So it's better yeah. that he didn't come back. And That's my you, as, you as, an, as, a, as a journalist, author, I've talked to those who covered Seaver. He was tough on writers. He wasn't easy to cover. So how did this this relationship blossom? You you go you, you mentioned a basketball game. You interview him early seventies when he's in his prime, young guy. Uh, you're a former minor league pitcher, and so you know a little bit about the journey. You didn't make right, it, yeah. but you know about the journey. So this is this is not common for you to, to right, connect with Tom. The re the way we connected is I never thought Tom was a big deal. Hmm. I was better than Tom in my mind when I was. When I was, he, he told me once he pitched a no hitter in Little League. I said, bullshit, I pitched four in a row. I said, and I struck out 18 batters every game. You know, when he was in high school, he was the fourth best pitcher on his club. 
I was averaging 15 strikeouts a game, and I had 16 scouts in every game I pitched. And I signed when I was 17 years old with the Braves, right out of high school. So my point being, I always thought that I should have been Tom Seaver, and so I treated him as an equal. I was never uh, uh, obsequious with him, you know? I mean, I would call him up in the middle of the night sometimes and tell him he's not he, what he was doing wrong with his curveball. And he'd say, well, what the hell do you know? I said, well, I know how to throw a curveball. You don't, obviously. You don't. So we had an equal relationship. It was never an obsequious writer begging him for an interview. I mean, every once in a while, I would do a story like I needed some money when I was broke, and I, uh, people wanted me to do a story on Tom and Nancy. And I called him up. He said, oh, I don't want to do people. He says, what am I going to be in a hot tub with my wife with champagne and all that? I said, he said, I don't want to do it. I said, okay. So he says, why do you want to do it? I said, because I need the money. He said, be here tomorrow. Wow. I was there the next day. We did the interview. I got the check. That's the kind of guy he was and the relationship we had. I was an athlete, and I was a pitcher, and I was a wise guy, and I didn't, you know, you know, I said, if I if I had your control, nobody would even know your name. And all, all they would do was know my name because I was wild. So that attitude appealed to him because he's arrogant and so was I. Yep. So and- we were on an equal basis. There was no, it was never writer, uh, famous pitcher when we interviewed. We, they weren't interviews. They were me and Tom talking and having conversations back and forth about everything. What you know? it's it's interesting that you you talk about that because I remember I'm I'm 45 so I didn't really I didn't see Tom pitch but I remember yeah. Tom as, as I remember Tom as a broadcaster and Tom I think looking back struggled now he's a broadcaster 90s turn of the century so the game yeah. is not what it was today I think he'd really struggle with what the game is today yeah. much different game but Tom struggled yeah. I think accepting anybody but the best like I think like Pedro Martinez he covered Pedro Martinez there's a great pitcher that Tom could relate with but you know as a as a fan or as a journalist you're like well Tom you know yeah that guy's got an ERA of four and a half but he's a solid pitcher he couldn't accept that and I noticed that in the broadcast he he didn't like like the game I think as much as he didn't like like anybody who didn't take it as seriously as he did he did I, I, I don't I never mentioned the guy's name, but it was Cranepool. We were in spring training uh, one year, 72, I think, St. Petersburg. We're behind the, behind the uh, batting practice cage while they're having batting practice. And Cranepool is taking his long, easy swings and hitting fly balls right to the warning track. And Tom looks at me and he says, if that was me, I'd find the strength to hit the ball 10 feet farther into the bleachers. He says, and he doesn't do it because Easy Ed was Easy Ed. He was a big guy, no muscle, soft, and he never, as far as Tom was concerned, he never went that extra 10% to Interesting. drive the ball into the into the bleachers instead of just a nice fly ball to the warning track. So that's the kind of guy he was. He couldn't, he couldn't countenance that. The first time he played basketball – we beat the shit out of each other for like three hours. We had bloody noses and bruises and everything. And after the last game, 
was the winner of the day, and he went driving in for a shot, and I was going to slam him into the wall. And uh, just at the last minute, I didn't because I said, oh, my God, it's Tom Seaver. I'm going to break his arm. I can't do it. So I let him have the layup, and he won the game. So at the end of the game, we're driving home, and I said, you know, I let you win that game. And he said, Jordan, I know you're three hours, and I know you'll never let anybody win at anything. <laughs> and that's what he liked. You know, and that, that was the foundation for our relationship. We were equals. And we were both super competitive. He was so much better at being competitive than I was. Because he was disciplined competitive, but I was hot competitive. That's an interesting uh, way of looking at it. That's definitely two different types of competitive spirit. Tom Seaver and me, the author is Pat Jordan. Now, Pat, I, I found the vault for your article in Sports Illustrated from 1972. Some really great stuff. Yeah. And, the, and the thing that struck me, and it, you don't have to read very far is the subheader you know the pitching wonders uh uh he works he did not come swiftly uh tom siever was not a natural athlete even in the article it's mentioned how from a body from a physique he didn't look like adonis and uh, you paint no. a different picture of siever that's funny pat this is an article that's <laughs> out there anybody could find it but that part of siever not talked about very often. I don't all. know why. He was he was never Tom Terrific. He made himself into Tom Terrific by sheer act of will. I mean, he was a, he was a modestly talented guy <clears throat> until he became 20 years old, when all of a sudden he gained 20 pounds and he went to the Alaska Gold Panthers League and during the summer, and his fastball went from 88 to 95. But but the the secret to Tom is when his fastball was 88 in high school and he was getting ripped. He was learning where to throw the ball, you know, you know, having, he had great control. Now when he comes back 20 pounds, uh, 20 pounds heavier in a 95 mile an hour fastball, he's hitting the black wherever he wants. So he's almost like one of those control pitchers with no, with no good fastball, you know, they always got to nibble around the plate. He's doing it with a 95-mile-an-hour fastball because Tom never had a breaking ball uh, that was worth anything. And uh, so, I mean, he was a fastball pitcher. as uh, Who was the catcher for the Cardinals? Uh, McCarver. Me. He said, he said Tom, all times did throw fastballs. He said, he said, you get two strikes, you knew it was going to be a fastball, but the question was where? Low and away, up and in, what? And uh, and he said uh, he didn't he didn't have a breaking ball. And uh, he said the fastest pitch he ever caught was in an All Star game from Tom Seaver. Hmm. He said the wow. ball hit the ball hit my glove. He said it was the most had more speed on it than anybody I ever could ever caught. You uh, know, I'm, I'm listening that, to you. I'm listening to you talk about Seaver. It's amazing because you had a minor league career. You were talented, as you said. You walked a lot of batters in that short time in the minor leagues. The the difference between Seaver, who had, as you described, up until a certain point, mediocre talent, and then became talented, and many others is this, and you saw it after he stopped playing with how he approached his wine uh, business, is this innate desire to win at all costs and the attention to detail. It's a gift, Pat. I don't think everybody, you could try to have it. 
you could try to push yourself. It's, not everybody has that gift to push themselves to the zenith. It's not, it's, not, it's, not to, it's not to win as much as it is to perfect. And that's Tom had to perfect well his talent. And if he, he, he could lose one nothing. You know what I mean? Like if he hung, if he hung a pitch and guy hit a home run, he wouldn't like, he wouldn't like it. But he would say after the game, I pitched as good as I could. You know, I pitched perfectly. You know, he could say I struck out 16. I, uh, I didn't walk anybody, and I gave one high fastball. The guy hit a home run. He said I can't be much more perfect than that. So it's not just winning; it was perfecting. He was a perfectionist, and if he if he he told me if I was if when I'm 40 years old and I'm doing what I know I could do at 40 and they're hitting me, I could live with that, you know, because I'm doing the best I can. You know, if I got an 88 mile hour fastball and I can no longer blow by anybody and I'm winning six to five, he said, I could live with that. If that's the best I can do. He said, I can't live with it. If I can do better than that. You you know, there's a, so many you mentioned earlier about if Tom doesn't get traded to Tom doesn't get traded to Cincinnati, he doesn't win 300 games probably. But there's a couple of what ifs that we talked about during the lockout, dead time. I you know you have those kind of programs yeah. where you're trying to just figure things out. So two what ifs with Tom, and I'm curious your thoughts. One, if Gil Hodges doesn't pass away, does his Mets career trajectory change as he stay a Met? Number two is a little bit more of a nuanced one and different. Tom was hurt in 1986. He couldn't pitch in the yeah. World Series. Al Nipper had to take the ball in game, uh, what was it, four. Was that if the Tom, Red Sox? That's the Red Sox. If if Tom is yeah. pitching game four, Red Sox up 2-1 against his former team, I understand that's a different version of Tom. Does that change that World Series? Does that – the Mets don't, maybe don't blow out the Red Sox in game four. Very interesting. Two very interesting what-ifs. Nobody knows, but you know Tom on a personal level. Maybe you want to weigh in on that and get your thoughts. Oh, uh, first of all, I never followed Tom's career once once he left the Mets that much. I mean, because I followed him doggedly from uh, the late 60s to the late 70s. But after he went to Cincinnati and bounced around, I, I you know, I wasn't a Seaver fan that I knew every statistic. or I don't even remember him pitching for the Red Sox. I know he pitched for the Red Sox. But I don't remember all the details of his career in his later life, right? Uh, by that time, we were just friends. And I would stop by and talk to him about his pitching or something and write a story. But uh, I, I didn't follow him. When I was younger, when I was in my early 30s, I followed him religiously. I mean, if he pitched on a, a Saturday night, I was in front of the television watching him. But not as he got older. So I don't know the the Gil Hodges thing and the Red Sox injury. You know, uh, let's see. You said the Red Sox was eight, but eighty six. Yep. Yep. So, so it's much later. Tom. Let's see. So I was uh, I was forty five. So Tom would have been uh, forty forty one. Yep. It was last year Something of his big like career. Yeah, last yeah, forty one. Yeah, yeah, forty one, forty two. Yeah, I don't think you know. But at that point, I think you you figured it was the luck of the draw. Sure. You know what made what made you what made you write Tom Seaver and me? You wrote it in twenty twenty. Obviously, Tom passed, uh, and I'm, I'm assuming you never read the book. Uh, what made you write this book, and how was it for you being that 
this obviously this this relationship was very personal to you uh going back many many years yeah i just wanted to i just because i was heard a lot of people talk about saying he was arrogant he was rude he was this uh, all out I, I, he might have been but so i was too so i never noticed it you know and uh we, we were very similar i always thought that the only thing I wanted to do with the book was to show people the guy that Tom Seaver was when he let his hair down. And he always let his hair down with me. He said things with me, some of which I never used, you know? And he never he never told me not to use it. You know, for, for example, the crane pool story that I just told you, mm-hmm. I never used that. Interesting. Because I knew... He didn't say don't, I don't, after he said about how Crane Poole not hitting the ball into the bleachers because he was too fat and didn't get enough muscle, doesn't have enough muscle. He never said, don't, don't print that, Pat, or don't use that. I never used it because, you know, he was playing with the Mets and I wasn't going to get him in trouble. Even after, even during the book, I didn't mention it. I, I don't think I used the name uh, Crane Poole. Maybe I did. But by that time, Tom was gone, so I don't. It didn't make much difference anymore. So Tom never pulled back, is what I'm saying, and he, he and he never did anything that, if I revealed it, for example, like guys who uh, you see him on the road in a restaurant with a, a woman who's not their wife, for example, mm-hmm. and writers don't write it. That would never happen with Tom. He wasn't that kind of guy, you know, and. Uh, so there wasn't much that I had to worry about, like to protect him, because he didn't do anything wrong. I mean, he was just—he was—he and I were just two arrogant guys going at it, and we Did, loved it. You know, he never publicly he was always very gracious. You know, the Mets opened up City Field in two thousand nine. We know we mentioned earlier the complicated yeah. history between the two sides. Was he? They honored him at the All-Star Game in 2013, and I think, and I remember that night, I think Tom was already, although he, nobody knew it, Tom was already not feeling well. I remember looking at him and saying, Tom doesn't see yeah. himself during that interview during the 2013 All-Star Game. But was Tom ever, what you could share, upset about the former ownership group and how they uh, really just ignored Mets history, really ignored him, made City Field very vanilla? Uh, and obviously, again, I go back, there's nothing wrong with honoring Jackie Robinson. But you know, I know, but he was with the Dodgers. But, but it's what? not a Met. He's not a Met. He's not a Met. Let's put it that way. It's like yeah. you know, it's like you, you have it? somebody else's portraits. You have a house. Your family is nowhere to be found, but you have your next door neighbor's portraits up. Oh That's no, the- I, I didn't talk to him about that that much. But everybody who knew him during those years told me he was. He wanted to be the pitching coach. He wanted to be the manager. He wanted to be a general manager. But could you know, he have been he a pitching to... coach? But, 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 Pat, really, let's be no. honest. He's such, he couldn't be. I don't see that as, I know he wanted to be, but Tom, just listening to him, and I don't know the guy, listening to him on the broadcast, he would not have had the patience for a young pitcher. No, not only that. Throw... How, many, there's only, how many drop and drive pitchers were there in the, in the uh, 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 mid 80s? Roger Clemens is the only one who resembles Seaver in the way he threw. Drop and drive and relying on his legs and his and his strength, you know. I was a tall and far guy. If he if Tom Seaver was ever my pitching coach, he would have ruined me. You know? <laughs> that's why I had a great that's why Tom had no overhand curveball because he dropped he dropped down so low to the 
right. to the ground. He could never get his arm enough to get the, the ball to have the proper trajectory to go down. I was a right. tall and fall guy, so I was falling from practically standing straight up, which made my overhand curveball go straight right. down. Right. So, no, that was, it was like Warren Spahn. Right. He never was a pitching coach. Ted Williams wasn't a hitting coach. Was a manager. Did, did he was a manager. Yeah. He was a manager. Yeah, he was a manager, but he was never a hitting coach. The greatest hitter of all time. He came to speak to in spring training one year with the Bra- uh, minor league Braves in Waycross, Georgia. Ted uh, Williams came to speak to the hitters around home plate, one of the diamonds. And I went over there as a pitcher to see what he had to say, figure I could learn something. And he told about, he was telling the guys, he said, now when you, when you see the spin on the ball is going to be a slider, you have to pull away from it because he's going to, he's trying to jam you with the slider inside and blah, blah, blah. He said, now if you see the ball, the spin on the ball is spinning up, you know, it's a fast ball. So it's going to rise and blah, blah, blah. So he t- says, and then he said, when you see the spin on the curve ball is going down, you know, it's going to break at your feet, right? And all the players are nodding. Ted Williams leaves. And they all look at each other and say, who the hell sees the spin on a curveball and a slider and a, a fastball? Only Ted Williams, whose eyes were what, 10 20 or 20 10 or whatever it is? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they couldn't. Have, so he's going to tell them how to, how to pick up the spin of the curveball when they can't see it. They can down. That's you totally know, different. So, yeah. Like yeah. Helen, Hank Aaron said, well, just wait on the fastball until it's in, and then uh, then uh, use your wrist to pull it over third base. Well, who's got Hank Aaron's wrist? Yeah. It, you, it, these are these are elite athletes. And look, I, I'd be remiss. I mean, you have this relationship with Tom, and and you got to 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 meet Tom. I want to talk about your because I think your career, as short as it was, is, is a lesson. But one last what? thing about Tom, I think. Uh, he had the Lyme disease, terrible situation there, and then he had dementia, and that's a terrible way because that's a uh, that's oh, actually yeah. you're, you're you're waiting, you're waiting for the end, and and you don't know when it's going to happen. It sounds like in some of the reading I've done, you lost a little contact there towards the end because Tom wasn't feeling well. Um, toward you know your last interactions with Tom, is there anything you could share um, that you remember? Well, you know, and, the only and, thing and, I could do, the only thing I I, I went into the room when he was about uh, 73, I guess. Uh, and he um, and I, uh, he was the Tom Seaver I knew. He had a little, he had short-term memory loss, you know, uh, like when we were, we were having breakfast and I ate pancakes in front of him. And then the, the, the girl took my plate away and he said, hey, you didn't have any breakfast. What, what, but I just had pancakes right in front of him. So I didn't make much of that. But when it came to recall batters he had faced or games he had pitched, he had total recall. It's like when you get old, you remember you, you remember when you were a baby, you can't remember what you had for breakfast. That but, is funny. Interesting how the I've mind works. All over, I've got notes all over the damn house to what I have to do every day. So I, I don't forget, you know? <laughs> you but, didn't forget uh, showing uh, up. Hey, listen, you didn't forget showing up for this show. That's that's a start. I so got I'm it on my to... coffee pot. I, I, got it, uh, I got it right on my coffee pot in big red letters. There you go. I got, I mean, you go. I, I got uh, my dog's pills. Got to be 6 o'clock in the morning, being a barber tall, and 6 at night. I got it on the coffee pot. Oh, that's so, that's great. Will but, you be will you be watching any highlights replays of the unveiling? Do you want to stay away no. from it? Like you're not you're not interested. No, I'm in not interested. I'm interested. I was interested in Tom Seaver when he was alive. 
That's, that's all. I mean, I'm glad anything happens to him in death is fine, but it's a little late. I, you know, I, you know uh, one of the things one of the things that I like going to Pat Jordan's stories and and I'm look I'm not an anti stat guy anti analytics guy yeah. but what what I grew up in the '80s enjoying about baseball and I've always enjoyed with books is storytelling I think that's what's interesting uh, I, I I failed all my uh, you know, biology, math, regents, you know, yeah. I was, you know, I, I'm a, I'm, I'm not that guy, you know, I, I just, yeah. you know, it never was me. You have a book called the false spring, which uh, if you go back you, your career, and I think it's important for the listeners to know that you were a minor league pitcher. You can find, you go to baseball reference, Pat Jordan's there, uh, pitched from 18 to 20 in the Milwaukee Braves organization. You struck out a lot of guys, Pat, but you walked a heck of a lot of guys. You would have drove like, pitchers that walk batters drive me crazy. I love you, Pat. You've been a great interview here, but watching you pitch those walks would have drove me crazy sitting in the stands. I'm like, drove me. What do you mean? Drove you crazy. Drove me crazy. (laughs) I won't pitch a game. I struck out 12 out of the first 15 batters, right? Five innings. I struck out 12 out of 15. Started the sixth inning, walked the first six guys. That's it. They they bring in a relief pitcher. He gives up a double. I give up six runs, no hits, no, uh, uh, no, uh, nothing. I get it. But I gave up six earned runs without a hit and a loss. And my earned run average balloons. And by because today, and I'll tell you what, Pat, today they would not get rid of you at age 20. You know why? Because you had a live arm. They would have, you could have pitched another five, 10 years because they're always today. There'd be a team that would want to see yeah, but, what is left, but, but they don't see that was the best thing the Braves ever did for me, man. Because if I kept, I would have been a 28 year old triple A guy and it would have been too late for me to, to go into another profession. So that and, they did you, uh, they like, did you a favor at twenty one, getting you know basically saying goodbye. Just like the Mets, just like the Mets did Tom a favor when they sent him to Cincinnati, which was a better hitting team. He could win three hundred. The Braves did me a favor. I had to, I had to find out what else I wanted to do in my life because my career was over at twenty. You know. You know, I got to tell 20, you, Pat. 21. The one, the one thing I think people who listen to this will take away is that statement about Tom going to Cincinnati. You know how that's a very innocuous statement. It's a true statement. I can't argue with that. And I'll also say, and I've said this, and people got mad at me, from a standpoint of how we evaluate trades today, the Mets got back yeah. talented players. Obviously, they weren't Tom Seaver, but they really weren't in a position of strength. The two controversial things yeah. about the trade is Seaver was better off because he went to a championship team and left the rebuilding team. And the Mets got, yeah. in theory, talented, young, controllable players uh, either that or they would go out. You know, there's rumors that it was Don Sutton. They could have traded him to L.A. and all that stuff. But by today's standards, when you trade a star, you want to get quantity of, of talented players. And they got Better, that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a couple yeah, but, of. But, but, a, but actually, they didn't. None of those guys did not much of anything. And uh, nope. I mean, Jesus, how could you trade Tom Seaver? I mean, when he. Uh, <laughs> you tra- how could you trade a guy in the middle of the season? And the team you trade him to, he goes fourteen and one. I mean, yep. aren't you embarrassed? Wouldn't you hide your head? I, I don't think M. Donald Grant was embarrassed because you didn't have baseball people there. I mean, to the, I'll tell you what today, and and and, and I, I see writers uh, writing about it. Howie Rose, the Mets' longtime announcer, yeah. said this is a very emotional day. Tom Seaver. What's amazing to me about Tom, and I don't know if he he knew this. There's a generation of Mets fans that 
uh, some who quit watching the Mets because of Tom being traded, some who to this day can't get over it. Uh, and, and, and it's interesting how one player on a team of 25 and baseball's not the NBA. One player yeah. can make things better, but they, you can't win because of Tom Seaver. Obviously the Mets proved that he's a big piece of winning. He can't do it by himself. It's amazing. The impact. I, did he know the impact he had on people who never met him because of what he did on the mound? Oh, yeah. Did he realize, did he realize that? Cause I don't know how that's a surreal feeling. I would think. I, I don't, you know, I would, People were always in awe, but he, he, he was funny. He didn't like to talk to strangers. You know, I mean, he was not, he was not one of those guys who was crazy about signing autographs to people. I, I, think, I, I think it was uh, Carlton Fisk when he was at the White Sox. This is a funny story. And they look alike. I mean, if you don't know, if, if you don't know the two guys, Fisk and, and um, Seaver, and you just see a couple of pictures. They do a look alike, you know, the boyish look, big, sturdy guys and all. So in Chicago, some people would mistake uh, Seaver for Fisk because Fisk was more famous in Chicago at the time than Seaver was. <laughs> they, Fisk and Seaver were having dinner and when some fan come over and put a uh, scorecard in front of Tom. He said, Mr. Fisk, I'm one of the great friends of yours. Would you please sign my autograph? So Tom goes ballistic, starts cursing the fan and everything. And the fan <laughs> slinks off, right? Yeah. And so <laughs> Fisk says, thanks, Tom. He said, that's just what I need. I'm just trying to change my image <laughs> from being a grouchy old guy in Chicago, and you just destroyed it with one yeah. person. And Fisk, Fisk is still. I've heard, I know people have met him at Hall of Fame ceremonies. Fisk could still be pretty grouchy to this day. So it's interesting. Well, well, it's, it's, uh, he's it's, one of the great interviews I ever did. Uh, Carlton Fisk. I love really? I, I did him a story. Yeah. Oh, he was he was forty four and he wanted to catch another year, and uh, the White Sox didn't want him to. Right. They said he was a bad influence on the catchers. <laughs> the guy's a Hall of Fame catcher. How could he be a bad influence on young catchers? Uh, you know what? There's a, many of bizarre uh, situations out there that come out of baseball. Hey, is there anything that you want the those who are listening, those who are Mets fans? Is there something about Tom? And we've saw, talked about it a lot throughout this 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 conversation that maybe yeah. they don't know something. Not that you know anything salacious or anything too personal. Like, is there something you want them to walk away? They know Tom, the 300 game winner. They know Tom, the Met. They know Tom from the broadcast booth. Um, ironically, even the Yankee broadcast booth. That's how ironic it is. But do you yeah. do you have anything that you know you'd like them to know about Tom that they should know because they have this well, connection? Well, know he's a he's a perfect athlete. All he wanted to do is perfect. Sure. I mean, he he he, he had he was the most disciplined guy I ever met, and I learned a lot from him because I was an undisciplined guy, you know, at the age of uh, thirty. But uh, he was he was a role model for me and how to if you got something a talent whatever it is keep your mouth shut work hard at it don't bitch and moan try to perfect it the best way you can uh, take the bad rap that you get with it and he, he I learned a lot about growing up with Tom and even though I was four years older than him interesting uh, he taught now, me a lot now. Is that why? And I have to bring this up for the listeners. If you go to uh, Pat's yeah. baseball reference page, yes, he, he was out of baseball at the age of 20 in 1961. But in 1997, 
when Bobby Valentine's the manager of the Mets, this is no more uh, Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris when, uh, you know, Pat yeah. pitched. You went back and you uh, pitched an inning in the Independent League in Waterbury, Connecticut. Walked the batter. It would not be a Pat Jordan inning without a walk, but you got through a scoreless yeah. inning at the age of 56. You got to tell me about that. Oh, That's amazing. If you missed the most important part. I struck out the cleanup hitter hitter with three pitches with a man on second. This team had uh, Dave Fleming, a former big leaguer, and Doug Pyatt, a former big leaguer on us. There's a couple of big leaguers. It is independent ball, but a couple of big leaguers in there. Uh, So you did strike out. You got to tell me about that experience. You're 56. You're playing with a bunch of, uh, you know, 4A, you know, 25, 30-year-olds. That's a funny story. But but they're good. But they're good. I think people have to understand it. Before I let you talk. You know, don't discount the talent level. These are good former big, you know, these guys are minor leaguers here. So, you know, they're better yeah, than they're, guys they're like They were double A. Yeah. But uh, no, but they, <laughs> there's a thing. We go there. My wife, we come from Florida. My wife's a blonde, uh, tanned and all that. And she, we go, I'm, I'm there, the old guy, and they're doing calisthenics. And I'm just sitting in the grass while the young kids, I didn't even know any of them. And <clears throat> so they're doing calisthenics. And they're going, hell, look at that blonde over there, man. I got to go, you know, they're doing the whole baseball thing. I said, oh, you, you know, you guys couldn't handle that. I said, I'll go over there. I'll get a hotel key right away. Get out of here, old man, you know. <laughs> okay. So I go over to her. I said, Susan, give me the hotel key. She said, why are you? Where are you going? I said, just give me the key. So I get the key, and I come back, and I show it to the guys. I said, see? And they said, oh, the old guy still got it. The old guy, you know, the whole thing. I never told him it was my wife. That's great. If you That's can't great. get laid by your wife, then you can't get laid. I, I can't. I can't disagree. That's that might be the best quote of the whole of the whole the whole conversation. <laughs> hey, so Pat, listen. I want everybody before I let you go. PatJordanStories.com. You could go there. You could get the best of his sports writing. The book, uh, obviously, uh, Simon and Schuster, Tom Seaver, and me. Check it out. Uh, you got some stuff coming up. Let the listeners know. I'm um, assuming they could go to your website as your new work comes out. What do you got coming up? And, uh, you know, not I just get, baseball stuff. You got you got some, uh, you know, interesting non-baseball stuff. Yeah, I uh, have a memoir about my father, who was a con man, grifter, and a gambler all his life. And I grew up as a con man's son. So uh, the, the title is My Father's Con. And uh, one of the lessons I learned, the very first lesson as a five-year-old, was when you're a con man's son, the first thing you got to learn learn is how to lie. You know, because everything you said was always a lie. And uh, he he was a great guy. Taught me a lot of stuff. And he had a bad life. He grew up in an orphanage. His mother was an Italian immigrant. She had him when she was 16 and immediately gave him up for adoption. And he spent the first 15 years of his life in a, a state orphanage. Interesting. And at 15, they threw him out in the street, and he had to make his way in the world. So he had he had a really rough life. I think it's the best thing I've ever done, and I cried my way through it. You know, because everybody in my family that I wrote about is dead. I'm the I'm right. the last one living. Wow. And uh, anyway, uh, that that's a it's really good book. There's there's some baseball in it. And there's other sports, but it's funny, and it's a little sad. It's a lot sad, some of it. And anyway, uh, what else? Uh, I've, I'm writing another book, but I just, I can't even mention it. I'm writing a lesbian noir crime thriller, believe it or not. 
That's just a, about a group of go. lesbians who who have a crime uh, have a small crime syndicate. And hey, uh, there's a dearth there's a dearth of good stories. There's a dearth of good stories out there, and and nothing is too off the table these days. So that'll be interesting. Not uh, anymore. Uh, yeah. No, not anymore. Look, somebody told me interviewed me about um, Joan Joyce, who just died, the softball pitcher. And um, uh, she would have loved Seaver, and Seaver would have loved her. Uh, and then uh, Mary Jo Pepler, who won the Superstar competition, she was a uh, volleyball player. And, uh, you know, we were talking about lesbians and sports and all that. I said, geez, in those days, you couldn't even admit it. Wow. I, I yeah. Said, you know, in the 60s and the 70s, I said, you couldn't even talk about it. Hey, said, Pat, you got you got Nobody cares. You got it. You got a female first base coach for the Giants the other day. The world has changed quite yeah. a bit. Baseball, baseball's changed. And uh, I think the thing, you know, baseball gets criticized a lot. But I think, you know, from this, con- the conversation that comes from it, I love the NBA. Um, you know, I watch football and, and not so much hockey, but I love the NBA. But nothing brings out good radio. And I grew up listening to, listening to games on radio yeah. more than TV. The problem with baseball, baseball Mike, is that the people who gravitate to it are conservative. Not because the problem with baseball is not because they're keeping certain people out in different places, but the problem is it's a conservative game. And most of the people who play it have the same kind of conservative attitude. For example, there are not as many American blacks in baseball today, right? Right. Why? Because football and basketball are much more lucrative and much quicker for them to be successful. And, well, I'll, th- uh, I'll, I'll throw you I'll throw you something else for any athlete of any age or gender or yeah. uh, background. And you are a perfect example of it. Baseball, you could have the best athletic talent. You threw hard. It takes so long to hone because of oh, the nuance yeah. of it. It just it's not for everybody. And from a financial standpoint, and I know they're trying to change that, but you're never going to be 18 years old for the most part and make. Uh, 10, 12, 15 million dollars like you can. No, the I mean, you're going to make a, you're going to be in the minor leagues until you're 25, say, sure. and making nothing and having to you have might a not part-time get paid. job selling cars. Yeah. And you might have to wait till 30. Gonna... Yeah, you have to wait till you're right. 30 years old. You know, and I know people right. say, well, you get called up, you make $700,000. Uh, older respect, one year of $700,000 is nice, but it's not going to last you a lifetime. Not today, not even back yeah. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. It's, it's great. Pat, oh, yeah. you've, been very, you've been very generous with your time. I, I wish we could do more. Let's do it again. Keep right. in touch. And uh, thank right, you thanks, again. Mike. We know Tom Seaver's Hall of Fame numbers on the field, but former teammate Skip Lockwood joined the Talking Mets podcast to share how Tom helped him during his career. I, I can't tell you how much importance uh, Tom Seaver uh, had on my career helping me to refine my skills and understand the science of pitching. Not that, that, that pitching is scientific, but to understand why you're getting players out, and what you're doing that's impacting the, the movement of the baseball, and pitching of the, the count situation, and who, who should be started off with a curveball and who shouldn't and why. And, uh, he, he was such an architect in a, in a baseball uniform. He made a big difference in my career. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com.
Brad Jordan had some really interesting things to say. I mean, I think one of the most revealing things, and I don't think it's a surprise, but I think it's probably one of the more hurtful things that came out of the interview was Seaver telling Pat, I probably don't win 300 games if I stay with the Mets. I mean, we did a what-if history with the Mets back, if you remember what our good friend John Struble of Mets Rewind back uh, in, what, January or February, right in the middle of the lockout. And one of the what-ifs was what happens a couple of things. What if Gil doesn't die? Does Seaver stay? Does Ryan maybe not get traded? All those different things. What happens if uh, they keep Seaver? And does Gooden get a chance to come on the 84 team? Seaver could have easily been on the 85 or a back end of the rotation guy on the 86 team. Obviously, that impacts Aguilera and Fernandez and maybe even the Mets going after and getting Bobby Ojeda. You don't know. And obviously, the Mets tried to bring Seaver back in 87 when they had all those pitching injuries, but he had nothing left. And then one of the more ultimate what-ifs is instead of Al Nipper, like I brought up to Bad Jordan, what if Seaver starts Game Four of the World Series against his former team in uh, New England in Boston? Uh, you you just don't know. It's just amazing. But uh, that the Cranepool story, Eddie Cranepool, a highly touted prospect who had a long career but turned out to be more of a component player, pinch hitter type of player. So very interesting stuff coming out of Pat Jordan. Pretty honest. Uh, talked about his own career, and I'll tweet it out. Uh, I have the link. Tom Terrific and his mystic talent from July 1972 Sports Illustrated. Always interesting to go back and look at some of those old Sports Illustrated articles and then look at what was said, how things were talked about back then and what have you. So I hope you enjoyed. I mean, really what I've been meaning to do since I knew the Seaver statue was going to be unveiled was make this weekend about Tom Seaver. And I didn't know how to do it. There's so many ways to do it. And, Pat Jordan, I thought, was the perfect guy, somebody we hadn't had on the show yet, somebody that wrote a book about Seaver and knew Seaver personally and could give us a few anecdotes and things that perhaps we have not heard before. So uh, hopefully you enjoyed that. As far as the team, first test coming up, the Giants also 7-2 and two coming in. So we get a chance to see last year's NL West champs. And the last time the Giants were at City Field, those, these were two teams going in opposite directions. Mets, I think, what, scored about three runs a game in August when they played all those games between the Giants and the Dodgers, and their season really unraveled. And the Giants were a team, as you saw when they came to City Field last August, that were making that jump after the trade deadline to being who they were, which was a championship-caliber club. So it's an early-season test. Like I said, the first I don't get crazy about anything one way or the other. I'm not going to get crazy about great performances. I'm not going to get crazy about bad performances. There's a lot of good vibes around this team. And 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 let's just keep it at that. We're continuing to get to know the 2022 Mets. The good, the bad, the ugly. There's a lot of good. And I don't think the starting rotation is going to pitch to 1.170 RA forever. So, you know, buckle up. There's going to be a few games that you might have to, you know, say, hey, he didn't have it, but let's have fun while while we're watching it. And and certainly this was a great, great weekend to be a Mets fan. Great weekend at City Field. Great weather. A great ceremony to celebrate Mets history. And uh, so far, our uh, 2022 Mets talking Mets season is really off to a rocking start. Now, one last thing before you go, because you may have noticed, and if you didn't, uh, pay attention. So... 
we usually come back from commercial to the Jane Jarvis organ. And I've taken that from many, you know, from YouTube and then from, I think I got the last one from Once Upon a Time in Queens from the, uh, from the Spotify uh, audio. Now, probably I shouldn't use any of this stuff. I could probably get sued for trademark infringement. I don't care. I mean, sue the Talking Mets podcast. I mean, what do you think? You think that you got a, a million dollar brand over here? I wish I did. I'd come to you every day if I could make it a living, but, you know, I got some bills to pay. So we got to do it in a way that fits into me, you know, keeping a roof and a studio over my head. But a uh, fan of the show, uh, at Clay underscore Senator, Senator Clay Davis, he's not the real Senator Clay, not a real senator. So if you think, if you think a senator in the United States, if you think someone from the U.S. Senate's listening, he's not. Uh one day I'll tell you about someone who used to work for President Trump that actually listened to the show, but I'll leave that for another day. Former President Trump that listened to the show. And I don't think he follows me anymore. I'll give that to you another day. I'll tease that another day. But anyway, he it's his moniker. It's the senator from The Wire. Great show. If you haven't watched it, watch it. So I don't know if that's – I'm sure that's not his real name. But he sent me somebody he knows. I'm not going to say you know who it is, uh, his, the relationship anyway. Uh, Rob Kluge who uh, apparently is very talented, did the whole piano rendition of Jane Jarvis coming back from commercial. So I used it, and uh, I want to give him credit, and I'm tweaking it a little bit to try to make it, it, it good. If you notice, I'm trying to clean up some of the little fringiness about the show. You know, this is a home-brewed show. I'm not an audio professional. I got some pretty good equipment now. I mean, we've really improved from the early days. I was actually listening to some early shows from 2007, 2008, even 2011, like, Oh, man, that was brutal. But it, back then, that was the technology. It worked. So what are you going to do? So hopefully, got to give credit where credit's due. Uh, Rob Kluge, the only reason I got his name right is because he phonetically pronounced it for me, the senator. So, you know, I, that's the way it is. And uh, posthumous, right? Is that the way I'm supposed to say I I, I I saw some joking around on Twitter how I almost bought – I thought I botched posthumous the last show. And then I stopped, I, and I said, I'm not going to say it because it's going to come out disrespectfully. So, yeah, Seaver Posthumous, that's the other one over there. So, anyway, I hope everybody had a good Easter Sunday. I hope you had a good Passover. I hope you're enjoying the season so far. Test series, first test series. Let's see where the Mets are at with the Giants this week. Four-game set at City Field, and then on to the road to play the D-backs. Uh, we'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast next week, next week, so buckle up. A lot to talk about. Hopefully you enjoyed this one. Of course, you can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. I want to thank the good folks over at the Fansided Podcasting Network and risingapple.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Have a great Easter. Have a great Passover. Have a great Ramadan. Whatever you celebrate, have a great one. Till next time, take care, everybody.